0: Holidaysburg to York, Somerset to Williamsport, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, the partisan divide in Harrisburg has seldom been so stark. What does this mean for addressing the problems and concerns confronting the Commonwealth? David Taylor is joined by Rebecca Euler and Stephen Bloom for a Capital Watch roundtable discussion. A Judicial Philosophy Matters. It has a direct impact on the daily lives of all Pennsylvanians. I'll explain on my town hall commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capitol Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. Pennsylvania has a new lieutenant governor but she will have a very short tenure. Kim Ward, who serves as president pro tempore of the state senate, will serve a dual role as lieutenant governor until January 17th, when lieutenant governor-elect Austin Davis is sworn into office. The two-week vacancy results from the resignation of former lieutenant governor John Fetterman, who was sworn in as the state's newest U.S. senator on Tuesday, taking the seat of former U.S. Senator Pat Toomey, who did not seek re-election last year. The state constitution provides for the state Senate President Pro Tempore to become lieutenant governor in the event of a vacancy in that office. One of the more interesting primary races this year will be the battle to become the next mayor of Philadelphia. Current Mayor Jim Kenney is term-limited and eager to leave office. This will create a vacancy. Democrats hold a lopsided registration edge in the city, meaning the primary is essentially the election. The current field of candidates is large but lacks anyone with significant name recognition or a prohibitive advantage, meaning the race is wide open. Likewise, voters in Allegheny County, which includes the city of Pittsburgh, will be electing a new county executive this year. Again, the field of candidates has become crowded with no discernible frontrunner. Stay tuned. Speaking of Pittsburgh, the unemployment rate in the seven-county region in and around the city has dropped to its lowest level since the 1970s, just 4%. That might seem to be good news, but the statistic is being driven by a lack of available workers, making it difficult for businesses to grow and expand. There is also an outflow of workers who find opportunities in other parts of the country. This is reflected in census data which shows the overall population in the region continues to decline. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. With a Democrat in the governor's office, Republicans in control of the state Senate, and the state house evenly split, Pennsylvania state government could not be more divided. Will they be able to get anything done? Our Capitol Watch crew is here to talk about the policy agenda for 2023. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is joined by Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation. David?
1: And welcome once again to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. With me in the studio, my main man, Steve Bloom, Vice President of the Commonwealth Foundation. Steve, great to see you. Great to see you, David, and thank you for having me here. Absolutely. And our other indispensable partner, Rebecca Euler, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. Rebecca, great to be with you.
2: Great to be back again. Thanks, Dave.
1: So we're starting off 2023 with uh, with quite a bang for uh, Harrisburg observers. It has been uh, quite a show as the very narrowly divided Pennsylvania House of Representatives has sought to uh, put in place a speaker of the house. Steve, can you give like play-by-play of what's come to pass? Yeah, the
3: voters of Pennsylvania decided to give our commonwealth divided government. And so they were successful in that. And now we have divided government. <laughs> we have a Republican-controlled Senate. We have a a, fi- a
1: 50-seat Senate with 28 Republicans and 22 Democrats. Correct.
3: And there's a clear in, in that in that body there's a clear uh, unequivocal majority Republican Uh, rule we know know who's uh, in charge right we know who's in charge of that chamber we have a governor's mansion about to be occupied by a democratic governor uh, and we have the house of representatives which was so evenly divided that at the end of the day it's a 203 member body there were 102 votes to 101 vote in terms of uh, who had the majority it was a, a one vote majority and so um, that posed all sorts of problems, but it became worse when it turned out that one of the Democrats elected uh, in November's election was actually had just, uh, passed away before the election, but it was too late to take his name off the ballot. So you ended up with this, this uh, evenly split body. A couple of other Democratic members resigned to accept higher office. And so now uh, we're in a situation where if you just look at the raw numbers, the Republicans actually have a Slight majority in the Pennsylvania House, and last week when the House got together to try to reorganize and elect its final leadership, which is normally vested in a Speaker of the House, there was a deadlock, and there was uh, hours and hours of procedural maneuvering and so forth taking place in the chamber, and finally uh, was elected the uh, a, a formerly Democratic member of the House as Speaker of the House, but. Upon his swearing in, he proclaimed that he was now going to be an independent speaker and would caucus with neither the Democrats nor the Republicans. We are likely to have 101 Republicans, 101 Democrats and this independent speaker of the House.
1: So it's like the – Rebecca, it's like the the curse, may you live in interesting times.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean – you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Believe that this is un- completely unprecedented. We've never had an independent speaker of the House in Pennsylvania before. Um, so there's a lot of things that go along with being in the majority, which we have to give some thought to because we're not quite sure how it's going to work out. Um, a majority in the House um, obviously controls the agenda in the House. They also control the um, the leadership of the um, of the of the chamber and the um, committee structure as well. So the committee chairman belong to the majority party. So we're not quite sure how um, how having an independent speaker and a uh, completely divided um, house will actually work out with all of these um, other things that go along with being in the majority.
3: And our show is called Capital Watch, but it's not. Clear that I would imagine that all our listeners have ever actually been to the Capitol and taken a thorough tour. Right. The, the Capitol itself is structured to have a majority leader's office, which is large and sprawling and conveniently located, and a minority leader's office, which is upstairs and much smaller and harder to get to, majority caucus room, minority caucus room, again, with very dissimilar attributes – favoring the majority.
1: Uh, That's a, for, for listeners at home, that is a wonderfully understated euphemism to describe the realities of, of Pennsylvania State Capitol building. The majority offices are Palatial. The majority caucus room is it thoroughly resplendent, beautiful. Yes, and the and the, the minority offices are very much. But not it's so. not
3: designed for an evenly evenly, guided,
1: d- evenly divided
3: house of representatives. Correct. And yes. so the question is, and this is a mundane question, but very real for the the members who are, are in the building. Where where are the offices going to be? Mm-hmm. Well, who gets the good offices?
2: That's absolutely true. But it's even just the procedure on the House floor follows very specific um, processes depending on, you know, who is in the majority and who the leaders are, which we're not even sure, you know, um, when when the House is in session, how that procedure is going to work. Exactly. Right, because the
3: physical architecture of the building is designed for a majority and a minority. But the same with the 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 structure of rules that surround the committees – which is where all bills start. A bill can't ever get passed if it doesn't first run out of a committee. And so the committees are normally – there is a majority chairperson of each committee given to the the, the the member who is from the majority party serving on that committee appointed as chair. So what happens when there's no majority? What happens in this scenario of a 101 to 101 tie with a independent speaker in the middle?
1: I have seen – on multiple occasions when the the difference between the caucuses comes down to one or two votes, I have seen people switch parties and take the majority with them. Um, I've not seen it like on a knife's edge the way that the situation seems to be uh, for the moment. But also – but you, you guys were talking about the rules – And, um, you know, we have not yet seen, at least as we're sitting here recording the program, we have not yet seen what the new package of rules is going to be as to how the chamber is going to be governed for this legislative session. So that's that's a really big deal, Steve, is it not?
3: And the rules are actually adopted by a majority of the chamber, just like like that. That is that is part of what they do. They elect their own or, or enact their own rules at the beginning of the session. And in in this week's maneuvering, when there was an attempt, for example, a, one of the parties sought to adjourn the, the session of the House, mm-hmm. and they forced a, a vote on that motion, and it came out 100 to 100. And I think we're going to see an awful lot of that. And when something comes out 100 to 100, that thing loses. It has to actually have a majority to win. Yes. And we could see scenario after scenario, including the adoption of the rules, where you have a tie vote, a deadlock. And the, and the thing doesn't get done, the important thing. And it's very hard to conduct when, when you look at something like a legislative chamber, in particular, the Pennsylvania House, which has existed since 1682. And rules and traditions and customs and protocols are extremely important into how it operates well so that the people have a voice in their own government. When you, when you think that that body may not be able to adopt rules because it's deadlocked, you can start to see that the problem of, of the kind of trouble that could occur.
1: You're listening to Capital Watch. I'm your host David Taylor from Pennsylvania Manufacturers with me Rebecca Euler from Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Steve Bloom from Commonwealth Foundation. And and Steve, that point that you make, you know, really resonates with with me because um, you know, ultimately all of these elected officials have a responsibility to govern. And that, you know, we are a self-governing people. We are Americans. We live in a federal republic with a permanent written constitution. And the notion that we're so divided, we're so deadlocked that we can't agree on a set of rules under which representatives can debate issues, enact policy and, you know, govern ourselves like that's a very scary outcome.
3: And it's it's a symptom of the fact that the public itself is divided, and as I said at the outset of the program, the people elected a divided government for Pennsylvania this cycle, and now the people will
1: will be living with the
3: the, the consequences, good and bad, that that come from that.
1: Ultimately, something workable is going to have to be developed, so that uh, again, that this you know great American institution uh, can you know, can function.
2: Well, and that's what we heard from some of the leadership last week um, when this, you know, came about is that this is going to force some compromise and some building of um, coalitions? So one would hope that that is one outcome of this. I hope that we'll see over the coming year, the coming two years, because it's a two year session that we're talking about here. Um, so hopefully in order to shake some things loose and actually accomplish some things, we will see some um, coalition building. So maybe we're being too pessimistic.
1: Well, I don't know. I certainly hope so. They say that pessimists are only ever pleasantly surprised, but it's going to be a sure. high wire act, um, uh, regardless. And and again, when things are this close, every single member, um, you know, is a kingmaker, and every single absence, uh, every illness um you know if a member would be, would be you know would be indicted um you know one single member getting in trouble could change the entire balance of power and that
3: would not be unusual if you look on on uh just look at the history typically in any legislative session you have anywhere from 4 to 6 members that leave for one reason or another during the course of the the two year legislative session
2: yeah and it's it's going to wreak havoc while you're waiting for that um vacancy to be filled, but it's going to be during those couple of months while that vacancy is going to be filled. So that's how, like you said, a razor's edge we are. Right, Because
3: those vacancies aren't simply filled by an appointment. There there has to be an election scheduled. The people of that district get to, to vote and pick a candidate that they wish to be... Serving for as their representative, so there's a whole process that takes weeks, if not months.
2: So it's potentially, you know, possible that we could sort of go back and forth between majorities. Yes, here that's true. Throughout the, you know,
1: yes, maximum pain for everyone. Way to go. Uh, <laughs> Coming up on the seventeenth, that we'll have inauguration day, and that uh, that Governor Elect Josh Shapiro will become Governor Shapiro. And that, uh, and that, uh, Representative Austin Davis, who resigned his seat, uh, will finally take up his new office as the Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania. And um, you know, in recent days, we've heard the first uh, bits of news about appointments that the uh, that the governor is going to make uh, to fill out his cabinet. Um, that uh, it's, I believe, it's Akbar Hussein, who was the um, uh, policy director. Uh, he was the executive director of the Shapiro campaign. That he will be the uh, secretary of policy and planning, and that uh, former Republican state legislator Mike Verb, uh, who is a longtime friend of, of Governor Shapiro and has was worked worked in the attorney general's office as 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 uh, AG Shapiro's legislative uh, liaison. That um, that Mike Verb is going to be the uh, secretary of legislative affairs in the new administration.
3: And certainly, you know, Governor Shapiro has a, a, a long record in government, and he seems to to display a, a um, consistent trait of having folks that's, that join his campaigns or his offices that stick with him. And to his credit, he has good relationship building skills. And so a lot of the folks coming into the Shapiro gubernatorial administration are going to be people who served in some capacity with Governor-elect Shapiro when he was attorney general when he was a county commissioner, when he was a member of the state house, and so to his credit, I think you know he's he's got a a, a long list of, of relationships, and many of those folks are
1: going to be coming over with him to the gubernatorial side. You know, as we look to uh, again the change that's coming with the you know with the new governor and the new team, um, you know they'll be the ones who will have to be uh, you know interacting with uh, this very very fluid situation. Um, you know, in the PA house, and then, and then, as was said in the Senate, uh, you know, the other body, you know, firmly in the control of the party opposite. And
3: the Senate is going to have to confirm those nominations that Governor Shapiro makes. So, without the confirmation, um, he won't be able to fill out his cabinet either. So, he has to work with that Republican-controlled Senate, senatorial body as well.
1: I would think in the in the early days, Rebecca, there would be. Um, you know, some spirit of goodwill that the, you know, at least that the, the governor should be able to to populate his own team with people of his choosing. Um, I don't think I've seen uh, a nominee actually rejected outright, although Governor Wolf did uh, get to the point where, you know, he just had people acting in those offices and he never even put them forward for Senate confirmation.
2: Yeah, that's true. In the waning years of um, the Wolf administration, they were not put forward for confirmation. So but you're, but you're right. Um Generally, there is a little bit of a honeymoon period for a new governor um and and the legislature will you know give them a little bit of a grace period to uh, put forward nominees and and also to um in in any case, a new governor will come in with new ideas and new initiatives and the legislature will listen to those and want to hear them so um there will be a period that will um will be anxious to hear what the new governor has to propose and and uh listen to what those new ideas are.
1: Well, the turning of the calendar to 2023 also brought... Um, some developments in the world of transportation. Rebecca, tell us about those.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've been focused on these here for a couple of weeks now. Um, the the uh, For the first time since Act 89 of 2013 passed, um, the, the gas tax in Pennsylvania has gone up automatically this past year. Um, and that also includes the the diesel tax, so gas and diesel. So our members in the trucking world are dealing with an increased diesel tax, which, as everyone knows, and I've talked about it here in the the past, diesel uh, costs are through the roof right now. Uh, thankfully, they're down a little bit from what they were a few months ago, but they're um, still painfully they're high. They're still painfully high. Yes, yeah, and those diesel taxes have gone up uh, four cents a gallon um, at the wholesale level uh, in Pennsylvania, and gas taxes have gone up three cents a gallon um, at the wholesale level in Pennsylvania to sixty-one cents, and diesels now at seventy-eight cents. So both those rates are um, the second highest in the country. So we are. Uh, dealing with uh, exceedingly high gas and diesel taxes. Tell us about
1: America's first superhighway, the Pennsylvania Turnpike.
2: (laughs) Well, it is America's first um, in toll roads, that is for sure. Um, (laughs) Maybe first overall, but also first in toll roads. It is the most expensive highway in the world. Um, the most expensive toll road in the world. So we have that distinction here in Pennsylvania. And those,
1: those bumped up again in January. Yes,
2: yes. Toll, turnpike tolls are up 5% um, in January, and that's um, mostly due to um, an ongoing uh, debt service that the Turnpike has to pay due to um, the legislature's um, in, enabling um, a ongoing um, debt that uh, the Turnpike has to PennDOT of um, several hundred um, million dollars a year. Over the past 15 years, they've paid $8 billion to PennDOT. Um, and that has put them in quite a bit of debt, which means we will have Turnpike toll increases for quite some time. Okay. And this year it was 5%. Yeah, so. You
1: know, points for consistency.
2: Yeah, no fun there.
1: So as we look forward to the... Um just the never-ending circus of stuff that happens in Harrisburg. Um, just and anyway, Steve, as a former member of, of the House, what are your reflections on the current situation?
3: Well, again, it's unprecedented and it's difficult for a body that works by tradition and, and, and the past practices, the precedents of the past to guide itself when you're in uncharted territory. So it's going to be awkward. And I expect that, I'll, you know, despite the best efforts of everyone
1: to try to make it work, there's going to be times it simply doesn't work. Rebecca, what are you expecting as the, uh, as the year continues to uh, unfold before us?
2: Well, I think um, the combination of sort of the uh, uncertainty that we discussed in the House, along with having a new uh, gubernatorial administration come in, it's going to be a, a bumpy road here for the first couple of months. Um, so we're going to have to sort of hang on for the ride. Yes.
1: Well, against... All expectations. Let's hope that everybody can uh, display their best behavior to try to uh, fulfill their responsibilities and to conduct the public's business with some degree of dignity and effectiveness. So anyway, with that fond wish, uh, we'll thank our listeners for being with us. And, um, and as we check out, Steve, where can people go to learn more about you and uh, what you do? They can visit CommonwealthFoundation.org. And, Rebecca, where can people go online to, to learn more about you?
2: They can find the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association at pmta.org.
1: And as ever, you can find me online at pamanufacturers.org and on the Pennsylvania Cable Network at 830 on Sundays with PMA Perspective. From Stephen, Rebecca and me, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Loman Henry.
0: Thank you, David. Judicial philosophy is not something most Americans discuss at the dinner table. It is an esoteric phrase most associate with a political science or law school class. Judicial philosophy does, however, impact the daily lives of everyone sitting around that dinner table. The judiciary is the most overlooked branch of our federal and state governments. It is a supposedly co-equal branch of government— that actually welds more absolute authority than the other two, with its highest courts often being the final word on any issue. At its most basic level, judicial philosophy falls into two categories, activists and strict constructionists. Activists believe the judicial branch can use its rulings to make or alter policies enacted through the legislative process or by executive order. Strict constructionists adhere to the original intent of the Constitution, be it federal or state, and to the letter of the law. There are many shades of gray, but judges or justices tend to fall into one of those categories. Generally speaking, jurists on the left of the political spectrum tend to be activists in their rulings, while those on the right more often adhere to constitutional principles. Thus, can judicial philosophy be predictive of how an individual jurist or court as a whole may rule on any given issue. In addition to welding virtually unchecked power, the judicial branch is also highly insulated. At the federal level, judges and justices are given lifetime appointments. At the statewide and county levels, judges and justices are elected to lengthy 10-year terms and stand for retention rather than re-election privileges not accorded to those serving in the executive or legislative branch. This is done intentionally to remove political influence from the judicial process to the degree that is humanly possible. Most of the time, that works relatively well, and the overwhelming majority of the men and women who serve on our courts do so in a fair and impartial manner. A glaring exception is the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which, since the election of three hyper-activist justices in 2015, has evolved into a virtual subsidiary of the state Democratic Party, impacting everything from the ability of Pennsylvanians to go to work or school to control of the state House of Representatives. Ethical candidates for judicial posts do not overtly campaign on cases that are likely to come before their court. In 2015, then-Supreme Court Judicial Candidate David Wecht made clear his disdain for the congressional district maps enacted several years earlier by a bipartisan vote of the state legislature. Justice Wecht then provided the deciding vote to throw out that map and replace it with one gerrymandered by a California college professor. This ultimately changed the composition of the state's congressional delegation in favor of the Democrats. In 2022, the court again intervened in the congressional redistricting process, once more imposing a judicial map by fiat. But the high court was not finished tilting the electoral playing field. Redrawing of the state legislative district maps also took place in 2022. The court had before it the ability to appoint the fifth member of the redistricting commission, who supposedly was to be a, quote, fair and neutral arbiter. Instead, they appointed former Pitt Chancellor Mark Nordenberg, who was neither fair nor neutral, and produced one of the most highly gerrymandered legislative maps in Pennsylvania history. The process played out to its intended conclusion in the November 2022 general election when, running in the new districts, Democrats secured a narrow majority, ending a decade of Republican dominance in the state House. There have been many other instances of state Supreme Court activism ranging from the changing of rules for the election process to backstopping Governor Tom Wolf's multitude of infringements on individual liberty during the COVID-19 pandemic. Looking ahead, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is likely going to be weighing in on several issues that will impact the daily lives of every Pennsylvanian, including the job-crushing regional greenhouse gas initiative and public education funding. The death of former Supreme Court Chief Justice Max Baer, who would have reached mandatory retirement age this year, has resulted in a vacancy on the court that will be filled by voters this year. Seats are also up for election to the statewide superior and Commonwealth courts. These elections will not receive anywhere near the attention of last year's high-profile races for U.S. Senator and Governor. However, their impact on our daily lives is equal to, and sometimes greater than, that of the other two branches. It will take a bit more effort, but voters should pay attention to the candidates for these seats, learn about their judicial philosophy, and then cast an informed vote. With the Town Hall Commentary, I'm Loman Henry. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 28 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WIOO-FM and Red 102.3 FM in Carlisle, along with WCEDAM in Dubois, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal. Plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.